G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. So today I would like to introduce you to Laura Struber, <laughs> who is a PhD candidate in geological sciences under the supervision of Dr. Ryan Mulligan from Civil Engineering and Dr. Pierre Pufal from Geology. Welcome to Grad Chat, Laura. Thank you, happy to be here. So Laura, first of all, thank you very much for coming into the studio. And I, I don't know if you've been coming on campus too much lately, but it's great to be in the studio. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. This is my first time here. So it's really lovely to check out the studio. But yeah, I've only been coming to campus um, for the past couple of weeks now. I just got back into my office and nice. really happy to be productive in there now. It does make a difference, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. It's, it's still a bit strange because we're still running around with masks and things on and still going through the protocols of doing the secure wrap and all those, all, everything else that we have to do here at Queen's. But the campus is starting to look like a campus again. Yes, yeah. It's nice to have the students around. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good that you got back into your office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I love my office too because it has a really nice view of the water, actually, oh. which is what I study. So whenever I need some inspiration, I just look over my computer and I get to see the water. I'm like, okay, that's why I'm here. That's, that's why, why I'm doing yeah. what I'm doing. <laughs> I love it. Although, as we'll find out a little bit later, there's a bit more to it than that. Than yeah. Just, just being able to look at the water, which is always, I find, calming mm -hmm. most of the time. But yes, um, yeah. that's a little bit of a secret of what we're going to talk about later. <laughs> But it was interesting, Laura, I was, I was looking to see what you did in your bachelor's and your master's before actually coming to Queen's to do your PhD. And that was all down in Virginia, USA. Uh, you know, your bachelor at the University of Virginia mm -hmm. and then your master's at the, uh, Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. What made you want to study down there first before coming to Queen's to do your PhD? So I was born in Toronto, Ontario, but when I was three, my whole family moved down to Virginia. So Virginia is actually where I grew up. Right. And so I chose Virginia in institutions because I wanted to get in-state tuition, first of all. Uh, but they also had really good like environmental sciences and coastal science programs. So I wanted to come to Queens here in Kingston, Ontario primarily because of my um, primary supervisor, Dr. Ryan Mulligan. He studies coastal storms, and so I found a really good right. overlap within research interests. But also, I was really happy that Kingston is on the water because <laughs> both at University of Virginia and Virginia Tech, those are in the middle or the western sides of Virginia. So if I ever wanted to actually go to any study sites or to see the ocean or to see waves at all, I would have, right. have, to, I would have to drive, you know, three to four hours. Um, so I really appreciate just the area that is Kingston. It's just mm -hmm. beautiful. It's on the water. And Queens just also had the perfect research program for me. And we also have the Coastal Lab over at West Campus where yes. we have 
that crazy wave basin. I yeah. Love that, that machine or that basin, as you said. Yeah, yeah. That whole area is just, yeah, it's insane, the, the equipment and the resources that we have there. So all of those factors together brought me back to Canada, where I can actually you know, take advantage of my Canadian citizenship for the first time. So I was also happy to become like a true Canadian again. (laughs) Wear the red and white. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, that's really good. And it's interesting you said, you know, with Kingston being on the lake, mm-hmm. uh, I know when I first came to Canada and I saw the Great Lakes for the for the first time, and it was like, where do they stop? This really could be like being on the ocean. Yeah, yeah, you can forget sometimes. Correct. Especially uh, on a windy day. On a windy day. Otherwise, yes, not so much. It is more like a lake. But the fact it stretches so far, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, quite amazing. And, and, of course, as you said, on a windy day, you can still get those waves and things coming coming into shore. Mm-hmm. Not sure they're big enough to go surfing, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're still big enough to make, a, make an impact on the shoreline. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which is is really, really important. So I guess what we should talk about then is your research topic. And if I've written this down correctly, you're talking about nearshore surf zone wave angle variability and hydrodynamics. Yes. (laughs) So... As I always say to everyone, because sometimes the research titles yeah. are a bit much for the general population, myself included. Mm-hmm. And even though you can sort of pick out words there and kind of pick, put it together, mm-hmm. how about you let us know what does that all mean? And just just generally. Sure. So I'll just I'll break it down. So the the area that I'm studying is the near shore coastal zone. So that is just the first couple of kilometers from the shoreline. So it's where you see the waves start to increase in height. It's the area where the waves start to kind of bend in response to the the bathymetry, which is the bottom kind of boundary layer there. It's the sandy bottom. Okay. And so the waves bend in response to the bottom of the sea floor and they start to, you know, increase in height and in steepness and then they start to break. So that area of action is my area of interest. And I'm studying wave angle variability because, like I said, waves bend in response to the seafloor. And that's actually a very dynamic process because the seafloor, that sandy bottom, changes pretty rapidly in response to other forces, especially during storm events. So during storm events, you have increased wave height. You have a lot more energy, which alters the bottom morphology, which is a fancy way of saying the bottom of the seafloor there. And that change in response affects the waves. And so it's this dynamic interplay between the changing bottom of the sea floor and then the response change in the waves. All of this is important because the way in which the waves attack the shoreline or the angle at which they approach the shoreline affects other processes like erosion or rip currents and longshore currents. So all of these things are interrelated and we are only now starting to get a high resolution, high spatial kind of awareness of these processes. You talked about the ocean floor, you talked about the wave above Mm -hmm. and how to play against each other and can change each other at different times. Yes. Is this also a play of when we talk about the rips? So I don't particularly study rip currents. So there are researchers who study specifically rip currents. 
Um, and rip currents usually occur when there's a break in the longshore bar. So usually in sandy coastlines, you end up with an offshore sandbar mm -hmm. and you have these longshore currents that are also running parallel to the shoreline. And so every once in a while under certain conditions, there is a break in that bar. So ah. the bar is not continuous anymore. So and that's there's why a gap. You get out. And so, yeah, there's that gap in the barrier. And so all the water starts rushing out at that particular point. And so the, it can it can come about because the longshore currents are kind of meeting each other and then getting sucked out um, that way. And you can identify rip currents in a lot of cases from aerial imagery because you can see the sediment plume that is kind okay. of pulling the water and pulling the sediment out towards that kind of drainage point, essentially. Well, I know the surf lifesavers are pretty good at realizing where the rips are yeah, and, yeah. and putting flags to not go there mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, you know, it's safe to swim here, but don't go over there because you can get pulled out. Yeah. So I know that's a bit of a not your your uh, area of expertise. No, it's, it's, it's all within my area of interest, though. So that's, that's good. So, so let me ask that. What what made you get interested in coastal science? Because, I mean, first of all, here in Kingston, it's a lake. It's not the sea. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you can still do look at some things here. But what made you want to get into coastal science if you'd never actually lived on the coast? I think two experiences. One, research experience in undergrad and then some work experience um, after graduation. So starting with the research experience I had in undergrad, I took a course called well, it was hydrology, and it was taught by a professor who did a lot of environmental fluid dynamics work, specifically right. with regards to kind of the biology and fluid dynamics interactions. So he studied oyster reefs and coral reefs and how the motion of the water affects nutrients that are being distributed and yes. how, in turn, kind of the the roughnesses within the oyster reefs and the coral reefs affect how the turbulence is generated around those structures. Right. So, and his research, I just thought, was very beautiful because he used lasers to illuminate these ah. flows in the lab. So basically, he has the this oily water with sparkles in it, and then he illuminates it with a laser and records the flow, and then you can track sure. those particles. You just like gadgets. I, I just thought, it, I, just, <laughs> I don't know, I think I just really am attracted to kind of the flow of water for right. some reason. I just think it's kind of like why we enjoy watching fireworks maybe mm -hmm. in that sense. It's artistic, sense. isn't it? Yeah, and, it is. And, and calming. It's very calming. And so I, I asked him if I could get involved with research and I had such a lovely time going into the lab at night and booting up this huge laser and then having my <laughs> flume go back and forth. So that was a great experience and really got me interested in kind of the physics of water motion. Right. And then the coastal hazards or um, kind of the, yeah, the real world kind of beach application of it came into play after graduation. I worked in an engineering firm and we did a lot of disaster response projects. So I was sent right. to Louisiana after a flood event and I was also sent to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria to do flood damage assessments. Fantastic. And after speaking to so many residents who were affected by floodwaters or, you know, the the 
um, impacts of hurricanes, I realized that I really wanted to go back to grad school to study coastal hazards and right. near shore dynamics, just because it's becoming such an issue in today's society. With and it's going to continue, yeah. isn't that right now? Yes, it's it's, it's becoming a lot more complicated. We have so much infrastructure along the coastlines, especially in the United States, kind right. of along the East Coast. Um, we have so much infrastructure, so many major cities, and so much money invested in these areas but we also have these storms and we also have the complication of sea level change as well so all of those factors kind of came together to motivate me to go back to grad school and to study this stuff it's always amazes me um in this case with shorelines is that why do we i mean i know why people want to build there because mm -hmm. it's nice to say i live on you know live on the coast yeah but then you're up against the elements and we can't control those elements uh, in, in the way that we would like to. Mm -hmm. Yet people still do it. Same with those that live on a fault line. It's like, why, yeah. why would you build on a fault line? Yeah. You know, it's going to be guaranteed you're going to get some sort of earthquake at some stage. So, but but that's really nice that, you, that you've enjoyed that and those experiences you've got too to sort of help you. Mm -hmm. So... With your particular work, you mentioned you're looking at wave angle variability. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, as soon as you start talking about angles, that comes to math yeah. and things for me. And I think, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you talked about you know looking at sort of models and things. Mm -hmm. So what kind of model are you looking at? Uh, and how does this numerical model that you use work i mean you mentioned also the fact the lab out on west campus are mm -hmm. you using that to help you with your modeling mm -hmm. right. i in particular do not use any data that's generated from the coastal lab i use data that is sourced from my field site which is off the shore of north carolina it's called the field research facility in duck north carolina oh great and I use data from these buoys that are located in the water to feed my numerical model, basically. And my numerical model is based off of real-world physics. So they, we have numerical models that are based on statistics. And we also have numerical models that are trying to replicate real-world physics via right. kind of equations that represent the world as accurately as we can. And my model in particular is called SWASH, which is a good model for the nearshore zone in that it resolves or it computes and tracks the, the propagation or the movement of individual waves as they approach the shoreline. Right. And so the output of my model is the this continuous kind of nearshore elevation surface where I can track the heights and the movement of waves. And the way in which numerical modeling works is that you have to break up your spatial zone into points upon which you solve the equation. Because if you look out onto the ocean, that's a wide space and it's yeah. impossible for us to compute what is happening continuously across that whole zone. Right. So you have to choose a resolution that's appropriate for you. So my model resolves at two meter intervals. So if you're looking at the beach, at every two meter interval, I am calculating um, the physics of what is happening at that location. And it's two minutes from the beach going out or In along? Both ways, actually. Both. So it's a grid. So okay. it's a two meter grid, kind of like pixels on a TV. Mm -hmm. And I'm computing with this model 
the physics of what's occurring at that location. And honestly, the physics are all derived from very basic laws. So kind of those three Newton Newton's basic laws, something like, you know, objects at rest stay at rest, force equals mass times acceleration, and then every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Got high school physics. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you take those basic principles along with some other basic rules like you know, the conservation of mass, the conservation of energy, and you apply them and incorporate certain assumptions that are appropriate for your application, then you can basically derive these complex equations that accurately, to the best of our ability, represent what's going on. So that's how my numerical model works in a nutshell. It's interesting. In fact, I mean, math can be really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and, you, and you talked about the angle wave angle variability but when you're when you were talking to us initially about your overall thing about what is near shore what do you call it surf zone area mm -hmm. you also mentioned the ground underneath mm -hmm. but you're actually only looking at the water itself I am definitely focusing on the depth of the water and resolving that motion. I'm not resolving the motion of the bottom of the seafloor right now in right. my model, but I do input a bottom surface into my model. Which was that stationary thing you were talking about which is that physics. Yes. So my research site is great because it is an area where there is a lot of coastal research being performed. And so right. we are lucky to have access to regular bathymetric surveys. They have equipment and boats that go out and survey the bottom of the seafloor okay. on a monthly basis. Oh, okay. And so I take that data and put that into my model as kind of the bottom boundary. Right. And then I resolve the waves that are passing over that boundary. But there are other models out there that exist that resolve the evolution of the bottom of the seafloor along with the evolution of the waves. But once you start adding in more and more complications, mm -hmm. these models become very um, time-consuming and computationally expensive to run. So, so you mentioned that you're getting this data from down in North Carolina. Yes. So who are you... I mean, obviously, you had to go and ask them, can I use your data, please? Yeah. Um, did you actually ask them for specific stuff in terms of if they weren't doing something, can you add this to some of your data collection? Or was it you using whatever they had and using it now for your particular project? And who were these people that you were you were working with? Yeah, so I, I, I collaborate with um, the field research facility, which is associated with the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Okay. and. This particular location is the site of um, these collaborative research efforts, which gather researchers and institutions from all over the world um, to perform research at this location. And I'm very lucky in the sense that I was invited to be a participant in this collaborative research effort called DUNEX, which is which stands for During Nearshore Extreme Events. Right. And in being involved in that collaboration, I'm able to meet researchers and academics who are involved in all sorts of great coastal research. And I was able to go down there over the summer and um, help them install some sensors. And Great. I was able to go swimming and um, bolt in some equipment that measures the velocity of the water or the pressure of the water as waves pass over it. And so that was just a great experience for me. But 
it is a very great community to be a part of because we are able to kind of bounce ideas off each other right. and say, oh, well, maybe we should install this sensor offshore here because I can use the data and then I can process it and pass it to this researcher. And so it's a very collaborative, open community. And it's just great to have access to so much data because as a numerical modeler, primarily, I need this data in order right. to run my models and in order to validate my models. So I can't just be stuck on my computer all the time. I have to be out there in the real world kind of making sure that I am cross-referencing and validating all of my computational results with the reality of the world. It's interesting you use the word cross-referencing because how far back do you are you going in your data? Because we know over the past 10, 15 years, climate storms and hurricanes mm -hmm. are getting more and more prominent, particularly on the east coast there of the Americas. Mm -hmm. where they're getting slammed every year. Yeah. So how far back are you looking at your data to be able to say, well, you know, this is what happened then and this is this is what's happening now. And then, of course, what are you going to do with that data mm -hmm. when you found out, oh, this is that's great, the, the waves, you know, the height, height of the waves are this and this is the impact, but what is the impact? Mm -hmm. So my model doesn't simulate broad ranges of time. They're more so statistical analyses where they're statistically simulating long periods of time in order to detect trends. My model is what's known as a deterministic model, which just simulates a very specific event kind of isolated in time. Okay. So my particular events, there was a nor'easter in 2017 that I'm simulating, and then I'm also simulating some coastal storms from 2019. Right. And... So, yeah, I'm not able to speak upon kind of trends in hurricanes over time because of that. But I think that it's good to have a combination of researchers in both of these fields where you're kind of looking in detail at specific isolated events and then kind of contextualizing that within the broader research of trends over time and what we can expect and how things may become, you know, exacerbated over time when you combine those two perspectives. Right. Mm -hmm. And is this when you talk about, because uh, you gave me some notes, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> It always helps me when I've got some extra special help. Um, <laughs> and you, you put in here talking about, you know, why would you want to combine modeling, remote sensing and in-situ data? Mm -hmm. So what do you mean by that? So the modeling is what I've already addressed, kind of that computational simulation. The in-situ data is what's collected by sensors that are kind of fixed in space and they're collecting data at that one particular location. Mm -hmm. um, and then remote sensing comes into play because it's this emerging technology that we can start incorporating into our kind of computational routines. And the advantage of remote sensing is that you get a spatially continuous view or a spatially continuous data collection right. over time. And with the in-situ sensors, you're very limited in that you only understand what's happening at a discrete mm -hmm. point in space. But remote sensing, you can get a picture of you know the, the entire space that you're simulating. Right. And as a result of my collaboration with researchers at the Field Research Facility and other researchers around the world, I have been able to have access to both the in-situ data and remote sensing data. And I'm using specifically X-band radar data 
to validate the wave angle variability that my model is basically saying, you know, this is what's happening. And I have this X-band radar data to come in and say, well, actually, it's a little bit more complicated here. Maybe the equations need to be adjusted at these particular locations. Or the reality is that with the real world data that's collected is a little bit more messy and complex than what these kind of ideal equations and simulations are indicating. So what are you going to do with it? Once you've done this model, you figured out your model, what, what are you going to do with it? Well, I think the first thing that I'm trying to do is just to create this method of comparing and cross-validating across these different um, kind of data domains. So that's the first thing that I'm going to do because it is a fairly new space to be combining all of these different data types because right. there's usually it requires collaboration or to get access to all of this. So it kind of you have to be the right person in the right time connected to the right people in order to be able to do this. And then after that, the idea is to improve our understanding of how wave angles evolve in the near shore using what we learn from this new method that we're currently developing. And ideally, we can end up taking what we learn and then having a better understanding of how we can predict erosion or how we can predict nearshore flooding or wave angle, other other processes that are affected right. by wave angle variability. Because right. yeah, it's, I mean, I love math, but we <laughs> want to be able to apply it, don't we? In, yeah. in some way. So you, you've said that really, really well. So I guess what you were, you were always very excited about this when, as soon as I asked you, you know, why do you get into the, you know this coastal science stuff? <laughs> and you, you were very, very excited. So what advice would you give someone who is also interested in coastal science? I guess it depends on where they are. If they're if they're interested in coastal science and they're currently in undergrad in an undergraduate program, the best advice that I can give is to start understanding the research that your professors are doing mm-hmm. and see if there's a way that you can get involved in somebody's research. So that involves kind of looking them up, looking at their papers, looking at the methods that they use, and then, you know, taking the scary step of reaching out to them and kind of putting yourself out there and seeing how you can get involved. Um, Well, like you did with the worked at some of the places to help them. Yes, yes. Put the book. You say buoys. I say boys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You you have to really put yourself out there and you're going to feel uncomfortable because you're surrounded by people who know a lot more than you. But that is basically the best way that you you can can learn. Soak it it all up. Yeah, just Mm -hmm. soak it all up and never, never be kind of intimidated by those environments. So that's that's my best advice for people, whether or not you're an undergrad or you're out of undergrad and you're kind of in the world, like put yourself in scenarios, kind of identify opportunities where you can place yourself mm-hmm. in positions of learning from other people. And like you said here, we're lucky we've got the coastal lab mm-hmm. and lots of water on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though it's not the ocean. But uh, no, that, that's great advice. And so how would you try to get future generations involved in finding solutions to issues facing our coastline because it is becoming more and more prevalent you know the tsunamis and the hurricanes and the cyclones and just the big the big ways i mean i i I saw a program the other day on you know the impact of some of the high tides that they get in the uk and what that's doing to coastlines Mm -hmm. and seeing you know buildings hanging off the side of a cliff Mm -hmm. because 
when they first bought that building, they were a good 30, 40 metres from the coastline. Mm-hmm. And it's just all eroded away. Yeah. Well, like like we were discussing kind of offline, it I'm really lucky in the sense that my field of research is kind of easily of interest to a lot of yes. people. Like who doesn't like thinking about the beach or the ocean all the time? Yes. So in terms of getting the younger generations involved, I think that as researchers, especially in the sciences, but especially in the earth sciences, we have a responsibility of sharing kind of the fun side of our research right. and getting younger people just excited about the fascinating findings that we that we can kind of stumble upon just by observing the world around us. So I think that it's great to connect with younger people and then translate the world around them for them. Right. So you can just like take them to the beach and just start talking about, oh, do you notice the waves doing this? Or do you notice how they're increasing in height? Do you see them bending? And just tapping into that curiosity and showing them the questions that they can ask and that are great questions, but are easily observable if you just learn how to ask questions. <laughs> yes, rather than just looking at a coastline and saying, well, that looks pretty. Yes. Or, wow, that's violent. Yes. Looking beyond that, like you said, asking the questions. Well, why is it looking so violent today? Yes. Um, and, yeah. You know, and why, yesterday we saw that and today it's over there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why? Yes, why, yeah. Why did it move? Why, how, what's going on? I think a lot of young people kind of have this innate curiosity Mm -hmm. and then um, I'm not sure if over time people just like stop thinking to ask questions and there's just so many things in life that are keeping us busy but I think keeping that curiosity alive and teaching them how to formulate questions and um, encouraging them to ask their own Mm -hmm. questions I think is kind of the best way to encourage all sorts of people to become interested in coastal science. Well that's probably why you're an, instruct, an instructor of disasters and humans at York University. Yeah. <laughs> so you've probably got this natural ability to want to sort of help educate people and get people thinking. Is that why you took on something like that or it was just something that became available to you? Well, I, I have this focus in my research on kind of the physics and the physical side of the mm-hmm. science, but there is a strong part of me that always wants to be connected to kind of the human side of it, the social right. implications and kind of those consequences, because the results of my research are only going to be applied if I'm able to make them relevant for society or right. for individual human lives. Yeah. And yeah, if we don't see a need, it's just going to be exactly. a model. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited about the opportunity to instruct a course. It's at, at York University. It's called Disasters in Humans. I'm on this listserv called Disaster Grads, which I think is just a really funny (laughs) listserv email. And I saw this kind of advertisement go out for applications to teach this course. And I thought it was a great opportunity for me to remain connected to Mm -hmm. the human side of kind of my hazards research. And I was lucky in the sense that this course is also an elective, so I'm able to shape the course content in whatever Brilliant. way that I can. Brilliant. And so I have definitely skewed the course a little bit towards hurricanes and floods and tsunamis, <laughs> but I, I do try to incorporate other other hazards. 
And it, it's been such a great experience teaching this course. I've been able to learn so much. I'm learning how to teach and how to go about organizing course content. And it's just been a, a really um, kind of, it's been a great gr growing experience for me. Well, I, I think it's nice, as you said, to be able to apply some of the, the knowledge that you've got and be able to help others mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, for instance, with grad chat. Mm -hmm. You're doing some great research, but if you just said you were modeling People go, oh, yeah, fair enough. Mm -hmm. But you want to get people excited, too, about what you're learning. Yeah. And and see how they can get involved, which was, you know, the question that we asked, you know, how do we get people interested in doing coastal science? Mm -hmm. So uh, take my hat off for you for doing that as well. Thank you. Yeah. I think the best, the, the biggest thing I've learned with teaching is that if you're excited about it and you mm -hmm. have interesting information along with your excitement that people are going to be more likely to be engaged. And I also try to encourage as much discussion um, as possible in in my classroom so that I can allow people to pursue their excitement too in, in the form of questions and applying right. knowledge and synthesizing theory with case studies. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the biggest takeaways from teaching. But at, at least for me, because this is something I'm passionate about, it's very easy for me to express my excitement right. to the students, um, as long as I have the energy to do it. Because the course runs from 7 to 10 p.m. at night, and oh, that can be late. tough sometimes. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but best of luck with that. Thank and you. And also, best of luck with your research. It, it's, it sounds fascinating, and I'm so glad you had a chance not just to be in your office doing your modeling but actually mm -hmm. being able to get out and do some of the research yourself and, and help out down at the field place down in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank so, you. So that's fantastic. So best of luck with all of that. Thank I'm you. Interesting to hear how things go at the end but you're going to be just fine. So thank you very much for coming on the show. We're going to have to, as I say, call it quits. Cool. For thank the day. you. So, Had a lovely time. <laughs> good. Excellent. I always like to hear that. So that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Uh, don't forget you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.